This is the Pixplasm Podcast, episode 72, China May Builds the City and the City. So this book is, it's an award-winning book from 2009, and I think it's the most accessible of uh, the author's books, of the ones that I've read. Now, there are others that are equally good. I, I really like Embassy Town, for example, but the thing about the city and the city uh, is it scores really highly for atmosphere and originality and plot and pace and characters. Uh, it's basically a murder mystery or a police procedural, but it's made interesting by its unique setting. And it's the setting I'm mainly going to focus on for RPG purposes. Now, um, when I talk about books, I vary on how much late novel detail I cover. In this case, I'm going to keep it to the absolute bare minimum because revealing those last bits of the plot will probably diminish your enjoyment because it is a murder mystery. Um, But the main conceits of two cities occupying the same space aren't really spoilers, so we can talk about them fairly freely. This is probably going to be a shorter episode as well. Uh, It's kind of adding to rather than retreading the material that I've covered in the last three episodes about fantasy cities. Most importantly, uh, the city and the city provides some really great examples of the earlier ideas from those episodes. So as usual, I'll give a brief synopsis, followed by some discussion on themes and how to use them in role-playing games, and then finish with some further reading. Here we go. Alright, so the synopsis. Firstly, we need to get our heads around the setting. Two cities, Bessel and Old Coma, occupy the same space. They're different countries, they have, de- they have their own currency, their own customs, clothing, architectural styles, foods, vehicles and so on. And when I say occupy the same space, they literally tessellate. They have what they call cross-hatched areas, which are shared by both cities, where the citizens have learned through childhood conditioning to unsee the other city. To cross over into the other city is called breach, and it's a worse crime than murder and such transgressions are policed by an organisation called Breach, which is a law unto itself. If you breach, then Breach decides your fate. No lawyers, no applicable laws. So this Breach is a a terrifying concept, a sort of um, lurking monster which will, will come and take you away if you even think about the other city, even by accident. They emerge from nowhere. They're like these disembodied voices with apparently supernatural powers. Now, there are some other political consequences of this separation. Um, There's more than one political group concerned with either unification of both cities or the complete eradication of one city, like the far-right Bessel First organisation is basically focused on saying there should just be one city, and it is Bessel. These political pressure groups still have to abide by the rules of breach, and there's one one point in the novel where they say that, uh, paradoxically, Because they live so close to the border between two cities, they they have to be the most observant of breach to make sure they don't actually break the rules. Another interesting thing about the setting is there are some uh, associated technical terms that have been invented. I assume invented by the author. Um, Something might be described as gross topically close, by which it means two places in different cities which are geometrically close or as the crow flies they're close together but you can't take advantage of that proximity because that would be breach there's also the word toppleganger which is used to describe two places in respective cities which share a cross-hatched area so they're identical 
but they're actually in two different cities at the same time. And as far as governmental organisation goes, each city has its own police force and government bureaucrats. Some of these bureaucrats form the Oversight Committee, which meets at the border between cities in the, uh, in the only building which is more or less exists in both cities. It's called Copula Hall. And the Oversight Committee decides when to invoke breach for crimes which have illegally crossed city boundaries. It's not stated precisely how this city came to be two separate cities, but there was a historical event called the Cleavage, and there are various archaeological sites of interest which become key scene locations. These are largely exploring the pre-Cleavage precursors which form part of the overall myth that's the backdrop to the story. Part of this myth is a mysterious third city, which supposedly exists between the two other cities. It's called Orsini. Supposedly, it exists in the unclaimed spaces that Bessel assumes are in Ulcoma and ignores, and Ulcoma also assumes they're in Bessel, so it ignores. Now, I have to say that whilst it sounds like uh, you know, a big deal, and it, it is a big deal, I haven't actually spoiled the plot. The plot is largely concerned with what Orsini actually is, because this is also at the root of the murder mystery, and the novel keeps the reader guessing well into the third act. Let's talk about characters then. This is a murder mystery, which means we need an inspector and a victim. Uh, the, um, the inspector is Inspector Tyador Borlu of the Bessel Extreme Crime Squad. He's our first-person narrator. He's supported by a few other police characters, like his loyal deputy, Corby in Bessel, and also his old coma opposite, Kasim Dart. Uh, our victor is called Milena Geary, and um, it seems that she's gone by a number of different names. She's a PhD researcher from Alcoma who turns up dead in Bessel, and it's her research that's linked to Orsini. She also links the plot to a number of political groups, unificationists who she has interacted with in the course of her research. And her research is linked to David Bowden, a naturalised Old Coman academic and author of Between the City and the City, in which he posits the existence of Orsini. And that's something his career never recovered from, so that's the first thing he ever published, and now he's synonymous with a sort of uh, popular academic text about a mysterious third city, I guess a bit like the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. And finally, there are a few other groups of characters. There's the political distance, uh, establishment, the academics, um, archaeologists and anthropologists. And um, a, a few other groups who Borlo encounters in the course of the investigations and who also provide the context and background for the unique situation of the dual cities. So in the first act, the novel opens with the discovery of the victim in an abandoned van in a field with Borlo as lead investigator. And initially the body has no name, but they eventually identify as Milena Geary after discovering she's been using a number of false identities or nicknames whilst interacting with all manner of political adjutants to, uh, well, to conduct her research. She's a Canadian student and a fan of David Bowden and has bought into his theories about Orsini to the point of obsession. As the murder happened in the other city, they assume that a breach has happened and, as such, it's not an investigation for either city's police forces but it should be handed over to Breach who can cross the boundaries and 
do whatever they feel needs to be done in the course of the investigation. But at the point when Borla assumes the investigation will be handed over, he's suddenly surprised when this request is denied, and instead he's directed to work with his counterparts in Old Karma in a cross-border investigation. Uh, the evidence for this is that the van actually travelled through, uh, travelled between the cities legally. So if you go to the centre of both cities at Copula Hall, you can travel through uh, the border checkpoint, and the, ban- the van apparently did so. So in Old Coma, he's paired up with his opposite Dart, and immediately we see some tensions between the two in the second act. Dart messes Borlo about by stonewalling his attempts to carry out the investigation, and at the same time insisting Borlo doesn't go off on his own because he might breach in, in an unfamiliar city. So Dart is basically encouraging Borlo to treat this like a jolly, to enjoy the hotels on demand TV and to just wait in his room to be called upon. And like any good protagonist, Borlo's having none of this and goes off on his own to investigate the dig site where Molona worked which he's entitled to do with his own visa. And this, in turn, causes friction and more distrust with Dart. But eventually, like any awkward buddy cop scenario, they air their differences and then they start to work together. And this is where the main conspiracy stuff around Orsney emerges. The idea that this uh, parasitical city is lurking at the fringes of everything and killing anyone who knows of his existence. David Bowden only escapes its scrutiny because he now strenuously denies that there ever was this third city, despite having built his career on it. And from here, the pace and the tension really picks up with desperate struggles to protect witnesses against Orsinia's assassins, wild theories on the relationship between Orsini and Breach. You know, are they at war? Are they one and the same? And a lot of people spouting these conspiracies are nervous and paranoid, They're on the social and political fringes operating at the borders of both cities. For some, it's a political conspiracy. For others, it's a myth or a fairy tale. We know that people study the past of the two cities, the the cleavage and the precursors, but there's a sense of this watchful ancient power pulling the strings everywhere. But there's no single objective truth here. And in the third act, we inevitably get to look at this space in between where Breach resides. And this is part and parcel of the mystery plot, and and I really don't want to spoil that for you. Suffice to say that there are answers to most of the questions about the conspiracies and how the cities interoperate. Perpetrators are brought to justice, more or less, uh, but not quite in the way we expect. There's a great mix of dramatic chases and confrontations, and at the same time meditations on the peculiar metaphysical situation. We get partial answers to some of the mystery around precursors and breach. And that's how I like it, a bit of ambiguity at the end. This could be heavy-handed, and it could explain how everything works at the end. And if it had done that, I think the reader would have been robbed of the climax and denouement. And as soon as the mystery is explained in detective fiction and the solution becomes mundane, I often lose interest. Uh, so the best recommendation I can make is to say that doesn't happen in this book. Mayfield's managed to tie up loose ends whilst while still retaining some mystery and not losing or devaluing any of the essence of the two cities right up to the end. So that's my recommendation.
So a lot of the big themes I've already covered in previous episodes. Uh, instead, I'm going to talk about why the city in the city is such um, has such a set of good examples of certain features that you might want to explore in your game if you're interested in a city game with split parallel worlds, um, shadow cities, and the concept of crossing over. The first topic I want to talk about is Breach, which is probably the most uh, front and centre mystery of the book. And it's a really great example of the cost of crossing over into the other world that I mentioned in other episodes. Now, it's not really a cost that you would want to impose on your players, because uh, it's such an absolute cost um, that no one would want to even consider that. And that's not really where you want to be because what you want in a game like this is to encourage the players to press against the boundaries and to see what's on the other side. And if they feel that you know the, the consequences for that are going to be so absolute, they're not really going to want to try. So I think you need to dial it down a little bit. So let's say, what is the consequence of crossing over in this instance what well what could it be if it's not just to be taken off the board completely uh, because people who breach are supposedly never seen of again and i was thinking about this in the context of uh, instead of a, a topological map a a venn diagram of social circles and it's where two cultures intersect that you'll get interesting scenes happening so let's say a, a high school scene. I'm, I'm thinking about high school partly because um, Liz wrote a game called uh, 200 Word RPG called What Happens at the Prom. We're all playing sort of the, the breakfast club style aesthetic of, of different members of cliques. So let's say that you have this Venn diagram of a high school social circumstance and all of the crosshatched areas are where the, you get the intersections of the cliques. And so... In a game, you could, for example, if you're writing the John Hughes role-playing game, uh, set each scene in those intersections. Now, what happens in those intersections that's interesting? Well, you, let's say you've got two social cliques. When they're in those spaces, they will only really see each other. And they might, they may or may not acknowledge the other side. Really, they're behaving a lot the way that Vessel and Ulcoma behave towards one another in that they just don't see them the people visible to them are their own kind you know it's a tribal circumstance so in this tribal setting crossing over to the other side has cost you know you go over there and you actually you could lose credibility with your own clique for the crime of walking over to the other side and starting a conversation with the wrong person you know, people might even say, I can't be seen with you. You know, it hurts my credibility, popularity. And you could mechanise that in some ways. Let's say that you have uh, each each of your social spheres, and I'm, I'm talking um, any kind of role-playing game where you have a number of different factions and people are members of different groups. Let's say everyone has a stat called Permission. And Permission is a, a integer number. The higher it is the more credibility and cachet you have with your people and the higher up your hierarchy you can go to ask favours of other people or ask audiences. 
and you know you might be right at the top of the food chain crossing over you take an automatic hit to your permissions suddenly because you've been seen with the other side you can no longer get the ear of the very elite people of your own that could be temporary it could be permanent so it's a trade-off um the benefit you get for crossing over and talking to the other side is probably to solve the kinds of problems that happen you know the uh the preppies need something from the biker gang, so one person has to interact with the other one. Maybe it's uh, it's drugs, or maybe maybe they want someone beaten up, or something like that. But of course, these things are always in this kind of genre conducted in secret, and that's because you lose credibility if you're seen talking to the wrong people. I think I'm going to develop that idea as uh, as a separate role playing game, as I say, the John Hughes role playing game. The idea of a whole load of Venn diagrams and scene-based story game type stuff where the scenes happen in the intersections and the outcome is the fallout from one person crossing a social boundary into the other side. And you have to have a reason why they're doing that and you have to have a reason it drives the, drives the story along. And I'm thinking uh, a setting a bit like Riverdale. But to get back to uh, cities, of course, in this instance... You've got people from one part of the city being seen in another area. And you can be uh, very literal in that case that if you are showing certain gang colours or if you are just obviously not from that part of town, then for one thing, going into that area marks you as something strange to your people. And the other thing is uh, it marks you out to predators. Uh, and anyone who's not comfortable in that area is effectively prey, whether it's, you know, the the biker in the high society get up or if it's um, if it's the, the preppy going, you know, slumming it to score drugs or whatever. The next thing I want to mention briefly, uh, I don't have a great deal to say about it, but it's worth mentioning is the politics of um, the city in the city. And the fact that the politics, that they're actually represented by real characters. So they're real factions. Um, so it's it's very easy to say there is a political situation and some people think this and some people think that. Uh, what is done well in this book and, and what, it, what should be done when you're representing a political situation is you actually put faces to the, the activists. And um, whilst they are, they're not, particularly well fleshed out in terms of characters um, they become people that Borlo and Corey and, and various others have gone to and asked questions of and they become play pieces on the map so I, I think in terms of representing a political situation which happens in in a in a city you need those faces and I'm going to come back to this idea that, that you need um that you need faces and you need names to factions in general. In fact, why not? Let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about conspiracies. Uh, yes, I have a list of topics and conspiracies at the bottom, but actually it makes sense to talk about it now. Um, I think that uh, City in the City is, or Orsney specifically, is a really good example of conspiracies in a game for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it fits into the context of the setting. I mean, literally, Orsney fits into a niche in this setting between the two other cities. Ah. Um, it has, though, also an apparent purpose which people can understand. 
Uh, they might not get the motives behind Orsini, but they know that it wants to stay hidden, and they know it's going to kill people to achieve that, which is at the at the, at the same time enticing and you know it, it gives you a good idea about that they're serious and you you know that there's there's something about them the next thing though is of course there's evidence now this is something that sort of um i've got i've, I've got a, a few things to complain about about conspiracies in modern urban fantasy games generally and that's uh, partly directed at myself because for years I, I ran games with plenty of conspiracy stuff, you know, shadowy stuff happening in the background, the world of darkness, all that sort of thing. Um, and there are a couple of problems with that. Uh, one of them was there was no real evidence. It was all sort of fairly nebulous and implied. And I think that that is, is really, it, it does a couple of things. First of all, it's, it makes the players wonder why should they care if they can't actually see enough, if they can't see any evidence of this thing going on, particularly if the conspiracy is talked about, but it's not actually, doesn't seem that dangerous, it doesn't do anything. Um, then why should they even be bothered about it? I kind of think like um, a conspiracy character, uh, say character, I mean a faction or whatever, should be like a Chekhov's gun in that you introduce some evidence of it in the first chapter. It needs to be revealed in the second or third chapter. It needs to act quickly and decisively. It needs to threaten the characters and it needs to establish itself in the narrative as a player on the table. Otherwise, people will get bored. I mean, there are some people that there, there are exceptions. A recent Doctor Who, for example, the 12th series, they. Uh, the uh, Joe Martin character, the alternative Doctor, turns up in the fourth episode and then doesn't turn up until right at the very end. And, and it really kind of felt rushed. Uh, but I guess you know, if you're a fan and you're you're doggedly watching every episode, then you know you'll you'll keep that character in mind. Um, but I would not rely on the players to be that big a fan of you. That sounds terrible, really, but I think it's true that you have to um, you have to treat your your players as sort of uh, they are looking for some sort of payoff and some sort of incentive to keep playing, and you give them that incentive, and they will pay you back in uh, in engagement and in, in characterization and, and you know taking action. But if there's if you say there's a shadowy conspiracy and then you don't mention it uh, for ages afterwards, they sort of think well. Should I really be bothered? And I'm thinking also, one of the pieces of evidence uh, that the conspiracy exists is it's actually in that it got a name and people are talking about it. Uh, in this case, naming it Orsini as this single, slightly nebulous but kind of scary named character, um, treating the cities as characters, that is in itself a piece of evidence that it exists, that people care about it. They care about it enough to give it a name, and it's been researched. Conspiracies need names, so if you don't name them, then they don't have any bite. They don't really invite people to care about what they're doing. I also think that if you have too many of them, and this is a there's just a single conspiracy in this one, Orsini. Well, um, apparently just one. Um, that's enough, um, and. 
the players can position themselves as opposing that or at least wary of it. If you've got lots of other things going on, and if you've got, say, two or three different secret factions all having their secret war and doing stuff, I tend to think that that, that kind of... It causes reader or player fatigue. And players, particularly if... Uh, Particularly if the the sort of these are you know secret organisations fighting amongst themselves, the players if they're not given good reason to care and they they don't know why they're fighting each other and they don't know what change they can affect on both sides, they might say, well, what do I do in this situation? In a lot of ways, it's very uh, it takes away a lot of agency, I think. So that's my summary for why Orsney is a good conspiracy. It's named. It has evidence around it people have researched it um it appears to act and it fits into the setting it's it's sort of it's integrated into the uh into the whole theme of the novel okay two more things i want to talk about one very briefly is the precursor age stuff um i think it's fair to say in role-playing games uh particularly you know if you're fans of call of cthulhu or whatever uh the idea of digging up Preternatural technology um, and uh, investigating its uh, its sanity blasting, mind bending powers. You know that that's uh, we like a bit of that. That's good fun. The nice thing about the precursor age stuff here is it's not really explained. Uh, it's it's kind of a MacGuffin. I, not not exactly. I mean that that suggests it has no value. The precursor age kit, all the research, everything that's happening in the past, is there as part of the setting. It feels integrated to the setting. And what's more, it suggests a sort of the the world is not as we thought about it. There are other sciences. There is and, and this the precursor age stuff is also it, it ties into breach as well. I mean for breach behaves in a way that suggests they have supernatural powers. So if your precursor age stuff is also this this technology, this is semi-magical technology, that suggests that it might come from the same route. Oh, that's that reminds me. Another thing that uh, in conspiracies, by the way, so I'm sorry to backtrack, uh, is that assume that the players, if you're developing conspiracy, your players will apply Occam's razor to every situation. That and so if they've got evidence of weird stuff going on, they're going to assume it all comes from the same route. Just as the implication of precursor tech and whatever breaches using to achieve their ends. Uh, you assume it all comes from the same place. A a pre-human society or, or mythic society of um, of uh, you know Homo superior or whatever, and people who employ technologies long since forgotten, that kind of thing. You assume that breach and the precursors and everything else they all come from the same thing, even even if it's not explicitly stated. And as far as explicitly being stated in the novel. Um, it's not. It, it uh, It's present there. It's not the thrust of the story. The story is all about politics and a murder and research into the strange, but it's not actually about the strange stuff itself so much. Um, inevitably, that comes out. It, it is a, an important part of the story and, and motives for what a lot of people do, but Mostly, this is a human story about a it's a murder mystery, an exciting thriller, more than anything else. Where am I? As I said, something that turns up in role-playing games quite a bit. We we like sort of 
golden age technology or, or pre-dawn age technology or whatever. And, and, and this turns up uh, in Call of Cthulhu where you've got preternatural technology coming into our age. And it also turns up in post-apocalyptic technology, the idea in Viraconia with the afternoon cultures with technology which people dig up and they don't really understand. It should all have this mystique about it. The last thing I want to talk about is toppelgangers. Now, this uh, this interesting phrase that has been pretty sure invented for this novel um, has some interesting connotations. So the idea is that it is two spaces that are topologically identical. And what this really means is it's a, a single room that can be that that exists in two different locations uh, simultaneously and it has the same dimensions. Now I'm wondering if you could leverage that idea for a dungeon map um, and I wonder if somebody has already had this idea. I think it's quite possible and there's lots of inventive stuff that goes on with traditional dungeons but let's say that uh, you have a dungeon which uh, in certain rooms you can flip over to the other side in quotes and as a result uh, you can get onto a totally different map. So much like the city in the city, which has two intersecting cities with cross-hatched areas, you have two dungeons with cross-hatched areas. And there's a cost for crossing over from one to the other. And, of course, what this really does is just extend the map. But I think you could play around with it um, by making an analogous uh, dungeon to the two cities in terms of uh, the ecologies and cultures that exist in those spaces. Let's say um, sort of you, you have, um, uh, on one side you have goblins, the other side you have lizard people. Well, that's, that's a bit boring. But let's say that um, you have two totally different sets of cultures that intersect and they know that they live adjacent to one another, but they're somehow segregated. And then there's a cost of crossing over. Uh, what is that cost? Well, um, uh, could be a saving throw. Could be uh, that you must press a button. You need to be in a particular room. You need to be, make uh, devotions to local gods or something like that. And I think there are, there are enough examples in um, video games where you get... Uh, flipping over between um, two different realities that share the same map. I can't remember if I've mentioned it before. I think I have Metroid Prime Echoes, the second one, uh, is has these light and dark versions of the world. So an identical map, but a light version and a dark version, and you can cross over by using your power to cross over at certain points. Um, so taking inspiration from that, uh, why not create a single dungeon that can be viewed from two different perspectives. And the, for want of a better word, the light dungeon and the dark dungeon provides access to different specialised rooms. But another thing you bear in mind about Toppelgangers is that although it's forbidden in the city and the city to acknowledge and view the other city, in theory you can do just that. You can see both sides simultaneously. And maybe it hurts your brain to do that. But um, but let's say that your toppelganger is, uh, is the people that live on the ceiling. So you've got a three-dimensional space, a room of some sort. 
and normally the people in dungeon A live on the floor and to their perspective the people in dungeon B live on the ceiling and when you cross over um, then you flip things around and crossing over in that instance might be achieved by um, let's say if you jump high enough you can actually flip over and gravity reverses in, in the middle of the midpoint of the room and you end up on the other side or you can walk around the walls somehow. Let's say there's a, a David Bowie labyrinth style staircase that um, reaches out in all directions. And if you follow the staircase in the right directions in certain rooms, you can get to the other side. I'd really love to know if somebody else has already come up with this idea, because if they have, oh, I'd love to read that work. Okay, the last thing I want to mention is um, for not really companion reading, it goes back to the precursor age stuff in uh, The City and the City, and that's the comic book series Planetary by Warren Ellis. Uh, and that is a, that's a really awesome sort of alternate view on certain classes of superheroes, specifically the Fantastic Four. I think I mentioned Planetary before because it's all about the uh, how one group of superheroes from another dimension are trying to invade another. So it's this whole invading realities thing. But the main thing that's um, fun about Planetary that's that's relevant here is that they describe themselves as archaeologists, uh, not as uh, troubleshooters or superheroes, but they exist to uncover the weirdness of the world and effectively preserve it. So they have a vested interest in keeping the world strange, but also knowing the underlying conspiracies and strangeness of the world. I thought that that is a terrific idea for a role-playing game, where your idea is to go to strange locations, uncover strange things, and then make sure nobody tampers with them or no pesky troubleshooters or adventurers come in and actually destroy the magical environment good stuff i recommend it it's um total of 27 issues i think and they've all been collected in bind ups i think i gave the complete bind up to my brother for one christmas or something so i think that's that's about it for this episode as always, I've been interested to hear if you have any opinions on this, if there's other bits of The City in the City, if you're a fan and you think that there are other bits that require attention. Uh, so please like, share and subscribe. Reach out on Twitter, Facebook, um, email, uh, message on the website, however you like to do it. Uh, the music for this podcast is provided by Chris Brisky. Thank you very much for listening and until next time. Bye. <laughs>